Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash portland On this episode of the podcast, we are honored to sit down with Representative Shelley Bossart Davis. I yes. pronounced that right? Yes, you did. And we are out here outside of Albany, Oregon, at your lovely farm. And thank you so much for sitting down with us. Yeah, absolutely. I am really honored to be here. And yeah, welcome to Albany. Thank you. So why don't we start off, if you could just give us maybe just a two-minute bio of who you are, how you got into politics. This this is your first term, correct? This is, yes. First, so this is wow. my first time up for re-election, and yeah, two years in. 2020 feels like so long. I This is like your, your fourth <laughs> term in I've been real elected life. forever, forever. <laughs> 2020 is worth a decade, uh, I think. You picked the time to run, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, anyway, so we're on your farm how long have you lived out here? Well, we've been farming since, you know, I was little, third generation. My grandpa moved out here to Oregon from Nebraska in 1950. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is born and raised in this in this area. And um, what, one thing that you just said, so I'm going to jump ahead really quick, but talking about running for election, um, former Representative Andy Olson asked me to run when he decided he wanted to retire. And the number one question my husband and I had was, how much time is it going to take? And so the joke is he lied, obviously. (laughs) But who knew what 2019 and 2020 had in store? So uh, mom of three, three three teenage girls, um, which is crazy, um, 13, 15, and 18. And so we are right in the midst of online virtual schooling and, and everything. So that's, um, kind of our life now while, while running a campaign and running two businesses between my husband and I. So going into why, you know, people say, why did you want to do this? And, and I felt like agriculture, small business, transportation, um, needed a voice in the legislature and, uh, born and raised in this area. I was, I was happy to, um, jump on that calling and be a representation to my friends and neighbors here in Albany. Very cool. So your sister is also running this time around, right? Crazy. Yeah. How is that? It's, it's amazing. So, We've looked it up, and as far as we can gather, <clears throat> there's two sisters in California that were elected to the California State House, except they were in different chambers. Hmm. So as far as we can see, we would be, if she's elected, if I'm elected, we would be the first sisters in the same chamber in American history. Wow. No kidding. That's super huh. cool. Yeah. Of course, there's been brothers. Yeah. It's been father-son, father, but, yeah. but there's never been sisters. And so um, I'm the oldest of five. Um, Katie is the middle. She's number three. There's four girls and then our, and then the number five is a boy. So that, so, um, Amos has four older sisters. So after this year, there can be three more future boss. <laughs> oh, that, it, it, the, that joke has been out there and all three of them, it's a resounding no. But one cool thing about us, we have grown up on the farm and we have all started running equipment, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. And we've worked together our entire lives. And so that part of my sister campaigning and me helping her out and my siblings helping me out um, has just been life for us. So that part has been normal and has been really cool to be able to work side by side with with a sibling. Cool. So that's actually, uh, I feel like that dovetails into, uh, into an interesting conversation point is the amount of work that it takes to do any one of the 19 things that you just went through is more than I feel like most people would be willing to commit to something. And you as a, uh, a two-time business owner or are you, you 
operate one and you own another one. Yeah. So my husband um, owns and operates his family business, uh, Davis Glass here in Albany. And then my business partner, Macy, and I bought out Boss Art Trucking from my parents a little over two years ago. So we own and operate uh, the trucking and the custom straw farming mm-hmm. operation. And then we both um, manage another business. So there's a few things going on. And um, I know... The other side of it is, you know, female in politics is relatively new. I mean, comparatively. Um, so I have some pretty amazing teams around me to, to be able to do this. And I recognize that. Yeah. And it, it sounds like there's a, an absolutely uh, amazing supporting cast that really enables everything to kind of continue to hum along as normal because you're able to accomplish 25 hours worth of stuff in a day and it's, I feel like it's interesting because we as Republicans often say, look, you don't need to rely on the government. You don't need to rely on handouts. You don't need to rely on charity or this, that, and the other thing. Find, you know, find the people in your networks, find your family, find your church groups, find your civic organizations and find people that you know and you love and you trust and you can rely on them. And I, you're living proof of that. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you know, then you, then you throw in COVID and while everything that you just said is true, then the problem with that is when the government starts mandating and the government starts shutting things down, um, public and private, uh, all of it has to t- has to join in to be able to help our community. And I see it every single day. But you're totally right. It's it's those um, nonprofit organizations. It's the um, community. It's the small businesses that you see their names on the back of the little league shirt. Um, that's that's small town life, and and that's um, our community and. And we see that play itself over in, in every town across America. And so this year's different. You don't see those little league teams, which is yeah. problematic. Um, but uh, very proud to be part of this community. Um, like I said, born and raised and, and just feel like I'm representing my friends and neighbors um, in Salem. And that's a joy of mine. Certainly. So you mentioned women in politics being kind of a newer thing. And this is something that I was kind of curious to get your opinion on. Um, the Republican Party in general is kind of seen as the old white men club, but we've got you, we've got Representative Drazen, our, our House leader. I feel like we are getting more women in leadership positions. How can we kind of break that stigma and also get more women to vote Republican? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things is you have to see it to be it. Right. And so as we are doing this now, we look to women that have been doing this and as they've kind of broken that mold. Um, and we know that we're doing that kind of as we speak when we're sitting in that caucus room and we're looking around and we see Rep Drazen and Rep Wallen and Rep Helt and Rep Springer and myself and, and there's more Rep uh, Breeze Iverson. <clears throat> um, we realize that we're literally sitting proof of that actually changing. And so as we continue to do that, um, I see that, you know, our, my own daughters, we're able to show them, not just tell them that we can, but be able to show them that we can do these things. But it's interesting that you said that because I actually, um, the, our local paper, Albany Democrat Herald just endorsed myself, endorsed my sister, Katie Bossart Glasser, endorsed Jamie Kate that's running mm-hmm. in District 17, um, in Sherry Springer's position. And they actually said that they said a trio of our preferred candidates for the Oregon House of Representatives are relatively young Republican women with agricultural and business backgrounds, which is interesting that those are all three in Lynn County. But but there is a trend out there. um, And just really happy to be part of it. I think it's awesome. Well, and I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I, I feel like it's not necessarily part of it. I feel like you're you're leading it. And that's, I mean, at some point there, like you say, you, you need to see people like yourself in those roles. And I, I still remember it was 20, I want to say 14, where there was a, uh, there was a gay guy who played college football and he was, he did a really good job and people were wondering, is he going to make it in the NFL? And I think he made it to the Rams practice squad. Uh, but one of my friends who leaned to the left was very, was just thrilled about that because, you know, how many more, you know, young gay men will be able to see somebody like themselves play in the NFL? And I told him, I said, look, I, he's he's made it to an NFL team. Why don't we celebrate him for his football prowess rather than his, you know, sexual identity? And I at 
I now realize like that's a really wrong thing to think. Like you really, really do need to highlight role models in different roles. If it's a gay person in the NFL, a woman in politics, we had a black president. I, I can't even imagine the number of young black people who saw themselves in Barack Obama, much as I loathe the guy's politics. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I had a similar realization recently of realizing what representation and just seeing someone do it matters as, as a straight white man you know there's a straight white man in, in in every single thing you can think of and so just growing up as a straight white man and seeing a straight white man man president and a straight white male ceo and a straight white male in everything it never occurred to me and until probably a few years ago that not everybody has that experience. Not everybody gets to look at those positions of power and say and see themselves or see someone that looks like them. But this is just one of the things that kind of an epiphany that I had. And I think a lot of Republicans of the straight white male persuasion still kind of have a hard time with, especially if a lot of their community, a lot of their friends are all still those straight white men. I don't know. I didn't really have anything where I was going with that <laughs> other than just it was something that so didn't why occur we have to a me. Podcast. Didn't we occur to me until thoughts. recently, which I am <laughs> embarrassed to admit that, but I have gotten to have realized how much representation matters. No, I, so, I, I, I agree with you. And you brought up football and I thought it was incredibly cool. Just was it possibly last year? I don't know. 2020 makes you lose all track of time. Yes. But within the last couple of years, the first female referee mm-hmm. To um, do a, a maybe it was a Super Bowl I can't remember or, or and you think really the first like somebody has to be the first mm-hmm. and it, but it also occurred to me at the same time that I was a little surprised that she was the first which I think that's kind of cool to to be like oh that I'm a little bit surprised that hasn't happened yet mm-hmm. and so somebody has to be the first I mean I am in um, you know in politics it's still considered kind of a man's game although. Yeah, and the Oregon House of Repres- Representatives, I believe it's 47, 49% female. So doesn't sound so much like a man's game as far as the Oregon House. Um, across the board, I know for sure that it's, it's more male dominated. Um, but I'm in business. I'm in exports. Um, you know, I'm in international business. And so when we're talking, and I'm also in agriculture. So, um, I was the first female president of the U.S. Forage Export Council. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, huh. Well, that's cool, but it wasn't a big deal to them either, which I think is also cool. Regardless of whether I was female or not, somebody has to be the first. And so um, it's cool. I love it. I love being a woman in agriculture. I love being a woman in transportation, but I'm also looking forward to the day that it's not a headline either. Yeah. I think another interesting thing, and I, I'm going to screw up my, my uh, details on this, but I believe the Portland City Council, as of November 3rd, will be will not have a straight white male on it. Interesting. And I'm going to screw it up by, by, but you've got well, Joanne Hardesty. Joanne Hardesty. It's going to be probably Mingus Maps and if or not, Chloe Udaley. Either Daly, way. Neither one is yeah. a straight white male. Uh, you're probably going to have Sarah Anarone as mayor. You're going to have, um, now I'm, I'm losing the other ones. Uh, no, we're I, getting the other two counselors. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm blanking too. That's, but anyway, it, you know, the, the whitest, city in the the whitest major city in the country and you have basically no straight white people on the uh straight white male people on the city council interesting so that's really interesting yeah so i we're we're we were talking about the the leadership in the republican party and the republican party going forward no conversation here in oregon can deal with republicans moving forward without talking about redistricting and what that's going to look like um, what do, you know, what do you think about, uh, Senator Thatcher? What do you think about her chances? And what do you think, you know, how, how good can things look if we get fair lines here in Oregon? You know, can you have more, more representatives like yourself who are able to, to speak to the issues of rural Oregon? And how bad might it look under Senator Fagan where they are, there are, suffice to say, not fair lines drawn? Ultimately, whether we're talking about 
Secretary of State or whether we're talking about the House or the Senate, I really truly believe that balance is best for everyone. That, that balance matters. And that's what I've been running on. That's what I've been working so hard to campaign on. And that's why I'm really interested and excited about my sister and her race because it brings to balance. Like we were talking about representation matters. Well, representation matters around the state too. And you look in specifically, let's take, for example, House District 11. It touches and a little bit of geography, people stretch a little bit, but it touches Lebanon um, and hits about 20 small towns, hmm. small cities and townships, and then carves out a little bit of South Eugene, just enough to get that, you know, Make that urban blue. vote yeah. and goes all the way down to Cresswell, which is miles south of Eugene. Hmm. So we're talking a- about a massive spread where, and then you, you look at my district and I basically, I, I get made fun of by a lot of my House Republican colleagues because some of them, you'd look at Mark Owens in District 60 or Vicki Breeze Iverson and how many hours it takes to get across their district. And for me, it's 25 minutes. And so it's just very interesting to see the different districts. Um, but going back to representation matters. And as we're talking about redrawing these lines, um, having somebody in there that understands the importance of that for the future of Oregon in, in Thatcher. And I know that she understands that. And that's, it goes back to balance. And that's what I have been um, pushing for a long time now, because I can see what imbalance gives us. One of the other things that I kind of mentioned that I'd like to interested to hear your stories about is we just had a whole bunch of fires that took place here in Oregon in the Cascades. Uh, in Portland, we got a ton of smoke, but here out in your district, you had to deal with evacuations. You had to deal with uh, getting food to people, food to animals. How did that all come about? And can you give us kind of the story of how that all went down? That week will will forever be just emblazoned like in my mind. Um, coming down from, I actually was taking my youngest daughter to a doctor's appointment in Salem that morning. Um, the morning of this, I believe is the seventh, that Tuesday. It was right after Labor Day. And so we were in Salem driving back and over and over and over again. I said to Sam in the car and I was just saying, I know I've said this before, but Sam, this is crazy how black it was, how red it was. And as we were driving just from Salem back down to Albany, I had heard actually on the radio that Lynn County Fairgrounds was becoming a evacuation site. And so looking back and seeing how things progressed, it's, it's pretty unbelievable to think kind of how it moved through those days. But I um, dropped her off at home and I said, I'm going to grab some waters and I'm going to head to the fairgrounds to see if anybody needs help. That's what I was going to do. Check in, see where I can be of assistance. And Lynn County Public Health was already there. It's becoming this evacuation site for both people and animals. And I quickly realized that Lynn County had it taken care of, except for the barn, right? I mean, who knew, you know, being in Lynn County Public Health, it, here, also, we're going to bring in 700 animals <laughs> and you have no time to prepare, right? So the, the fairgrounds, the people there at Lynn County and the operations people, it's like they set up for a county fair in two hours. Wow. Like, here you go. We have animals coming in. Let's go. And so, um, I basically was there from early in the morning till late at night. Um, I have a background in county fairs and in animals and, um, was able to step into that role. And I also was thankfully trusted by the commissioners and, and by Lynn County to say, can you handle this? And I said, yes, I can. Um, and so going back to some of the videos I did on that day and watching kind of how things progress through the week, it was an unbelievable day, uh, week. I, I feel like I lost a week of my life. But on the other hand, um, what an incredible experience. Well, and I, I remember, so if that was the Tuesday, I would have gotten the paper on the Wednesday. I remember sitting there on the Wednesday reading through, you know, it was a big Oregonian, had a long story or whatever. And I, when I got to that line, setting up county fairgrounds is, you know, a place to shelter, evacuate, whatever for humans and livestock. And as soon as I read those two words and livestock, mm-hmm. I just remember because it's, we're not talking about your cats and your dogs. We're talking mm-hmm. about cows and horses and goats and sheep and animals that take a lot of space. And I are you, you really need somebody who knows what he or she is doing in managing the care of those animals. And this is for this part of the state. I, we in Portland are just like, 
oh no, my craft beer collection might go up in smoke. Like I gotta, <laughs> I have to keep my window have, shut because the air quality is so bad. Yeah. Like I gotta, I gotta save my, my Stoller 2017 Pinot here or something like that. In rural Oregon, there are so many more serious pressing, literally sizable concerns mm-hmm. that have to be managed that are, are just totally foreign to how we would think to, okay, here's how we're going to tackle this problem. And like you say, to have somebody in there who's got the expertise to manage that situation when it, it, it really counts. Minutes matter in these types of situations. I, I, that just had to be otherworldly. It, it really was. And, you know, you said kind of the, the main livestocks, but we're talking, we had emus, we had alpacas, ducks, turkeys, um, a lot of hogs. I mean, it was crazy. And so we're putting them all in because it wasn't like we had master plans, right? It's right. not like, by the way, you're getting 100 chickens and 200 <laughs> horses and this. No, they're just coming in. And so as, as they were coming in, we, we quickly realized and we were able to get one of our local veterinarians, uh, Dr. Ben Brought. He just showed up. Nobody had to call. Nobody had to ask him. That's what community does, right? Mm-hmm. They just show up. And he quickly came in and we also got help from the OSU veterinary services and, and their, um, teaching kind of hospital. And they came in because I, I can manage a barn like nobody's business. But once it comes down to animal welfare and making sure that the last thing we needed was a biosecurity threat sure. on our hands or any sort of disease outbreak, we set up quarantine stalls and we were ready for whatever that needed to happen. And we moved animals around so that it was a little bit more, um, pl- like it was planned, even though it wasn't. Um, um, but just seeing people show up to be helpful in whatever capacity we had 4-H FFA kids there to clean out stalls and to feed these animals, it was impressive. And I was so, so grateful to be at the right place at the right time with the right opportunity in front of me. So being from Portland, one of the, th- and I spent some time on Reddit, and one of the things that Reddit was pushing was a lot of the Antifa groups locally were also sending people out to help with the fires. You know, this. if, and if you talk to any, any liberal about Antifa, they'll say, oh, it's not an organized group. It's, a, it's an idea. And yet they are organized enough to send out people mm-hmm. to help with the fires. Did you um, run into any of those folks? Uh, any odd group of people? I know Port- this is a little ways from Portland, so they may not, may not have made it down this far south, but... I had heard that it was happening and I had heard maybe at the Salem fairgrounds and I had heard that possibilities of, of people showing up. And so we quickly within, it was kind of chaos the first day. And then we went into massive management of, you know, crisis management immediately the next day. Um, but one thing that was interesting and we realized you really don't know what you don't know until you see it happening right in front of you. We knew security was, um, important for both people and for animals for obvious reasons. Um, but I was walking through the barn, I think on day two or three, and there was this guy standing on top of, um, a pile of hay donated hay. You wouldn't imagine the amount of hay that came in donated. Anyway, that's totally a side note. But he was standing and he had a, a huge camera and he was taking pictures. And I walk right up to him and I'm like, where did this guy come from? I was like, excuse me, sir, you know, can I help you? Who are you with? And he said, the New York Times. And I was <laughs> like, what? How did you get in here? And he said, I, I told him at the gate. And I'm going, okay. <laughs> you know, so then immediately we have signs, no media, you know, check in here. But, um, in those situations, you, you, you don't know all the things that you need to check off. And, and again, it's a, it's a crisis scenario, but also you have livestock and, and whatnot coming back and it ended up being fine. Um, but I was walking with, um, public health, one of the heads of the public health who they were again, phenomenal. And she stopped and she looked at me for a second and she goes, you know, we're running two like crisis emergency situations at the same time. They were already COVID, mm-hmm. you know, and now they have this on top of it. And so, which who knows if they'll ever deal with something like that again. And we would have, um, 
meetings together every day at 11 o'clock and you have everybody from the sheriff to public health to, I mean, there's 20 different heads of something in the room to make sure that we're all on the same page. And uh, the sheriff's office basically said nothing like this has ever happened in as long as I can remember. And he goes back 30 years. Mm. And so just a, a crazy situation. Thankfully, we didn't get any of that that you're talking about, but I do know that they showed up at different, um, but we were, we knew something could happen at any given moment and you just do the best you can. Will it be perfect? Probably not, but you're handed a crisis and um, doing the absolute best you can um, takes experience and great people. And, um, and I think that we accomplished that. No, it's, cool. I, it's literally called crisis management yep. for exactly that reason. And yeah. I, uh, you mentioned a minute ago that some of the animals that had shown up were ducks, and it gives me occasion to reference the – I know there's like a D3 school in Eugene somewhere that has ducks as their mascot. You were fortunate enough to go to the state's flagship institution of higher learning at Oregon State University, and I know yes, your district uh, abuts Corvallis. Um, do you, do you ever get a chance to, to go over to the school or do you ever get a chance to like work with some of the students in any kind of like agricultural center programs here, there, here in your district? Oh, absolutely. Um, and so we, so both legislatively and, and, you know, just depends on the how, hat I'm wearing, but yes to all of that. Um, I've gone back to Oregon State and helped in like a teaching scenario or, or like a, um, guest teacher in different ag classes, which is awesome. Um, but also I've offered internships at my place of business for, um, students at Oregon State to offer internship credit. We actually helped with OSU in establishing one of their internship um, programs, which is super cool. Um, but then also being able to bring in students um, into the Capitol building and crossing fingers someday we will be back in the Capitol building itself. Here, here. Um, but being able to offer a day internship or a tour or a this is what this is like um, has been one of my um, goals going into it, but even seeing how important it is to get youth, whether that's high school, college age, younger, older, involved in the civics process and making sure there's so many people that show up in my office and they'll say, this is the first time I've been here, or I can't believe how accessible you are. And so um, that for me, that's a sense of pride. That's what I wanted to do and to make sure that this community and beyond knows that the, that their representation should be open to them. And so that's been something that I've always strived to be able to do. But also, you're talking about Oregon State, of course, but also <laughs> uh, Lynn Benton Community College. So one of the community colleges is right here in my district um, in Albany. And that's been really great to be able to partner with them and be able to open up my office. I have students that come in from LBCC all the time that come in, and they're lobbying or talking to me about things that LBCC is doing. But also, on the other hand, they're also coming to the farm and some of their ag programs are coming to the farm and looking at the hazelnut orchard um, and, and everything. So we, we're, I've grown up as an open book to the community and so I just feel like I'm continuing that in a different capacity. So I'd just like to take a moment to point out that Nick did not attend Oregon State. Um, his <laughs> wife attended Oregon State. He, he did not. I so, married up. Anyway, so one of the, on the drive down here, Nick and I listened to your podcast when you were talking with uh, Representative Bonham. Yeah. Uh, this back... Must have been March of last Decades year, ago. I think. March of last year, I believe. A lifetime ago. And one of the things you were talking about was House Bill 2020, the cap and trade. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it had not yet been voted on. It had not yet been, I guess, it was it was in discussion in committee or something. And the walkouts had not taken place. Are we going to see a reprisal of House Bill 2020 in a different form in the uh, the next session, do you think? So there's, so, so we're in October and the amount that could happen between now and January, two, two things. What happens in November, specifically November 3rd? I don't know if you've heard there's an election coming up. <laughs> I had an idea. Okay. Yeah. Um, want to make sure that everybody knew that. Um, so depending on what happens there, I think we'll answer that question that you just asked. Um, and also what happens with COVID? And what does that look like as we're moving forward? Does the session get delayed? Are we in the building? Are we not in the building? Does it get canceled? I mean, I can't imagine that happening, but what does that look like? And I think based on that, priorities might change. Is that something that 
we are limited in bills, that we are limited in the scope of what we look at. All of these things I think are possibilities. Um, and I, I say this often, but I really truly believe the trajectory of our state runs through November and what that balance or lack of balance will determine what that session looks like and would answer questions like that. Um, I, I truly believe that that was a topic of discussion over the last couple of years because our economy was doing so well. People could mm. pay their bills. Um, and, and so when there's food on the table and you have a job, you can look at other things to occupy your time and your thoughts and everything else. Now you're yeah. dealing with unemployment and you're dealing with education for our children and you're spending extra time doing different things. I would suggest that a climate emergency is not an emergency in most families in this state comparatively you know, today versus two years ago. It's interesting you say that because I think I mentioned before that it's amazing how many more single use plastics we're seeing, especially in Portland. You know, we had banned plastic straws and then COVID and everything happened and magically we're back to plastic straws or back to plastic <laughs> bags. Like all the stuff that got outlawed is suddenly coming back because who knew this stuff was sanitary and you know all the reusable bags <laughs> that have been taking back and forth to the grocery store you know now are potentially yeah, infected by covid anymore, yeah. so right. i can't do that anymore it's just it's really interesting the the priorities yeah make a very good point that what was a priority in good years may not be a priority in bad years however Again, from a, you make a good point, but no, I was just going to say, I think that we three Republicans sitting around a table in Albany can say, think priorities have shifted. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the Democrats agree. And my, well, the, the point I was going to make is, again, we're from Portland. And so Metro has, is trying to pass an yes. enormous, um, transportation bill to add another max line from Portland down to Bridgeport Village. And this is COVID. First of all, no one's taking public transit. Very few people are taking public mm -hmm. transit because it's just a, a, you know, good way to catch it. If it's just get all those people <laughs> crammed into a little bitty Correct. train container. And, you know, so nobody's taking the bus. Nobody's taking TriMet. And second of all, I, we don't know what it's going to, what transportation is going to look like after this. Mm -hmm. I will bet you that there are a lot of people who are working from home now who will continue working from home in the future and will never commute to work again. And so if you're saying this is going to be a way to reduce traffic congestion, well, we may not need to reduce traffic congestion. We just don't know. But we're pushing through this bill anyway, and I voted no on it, and hopefully Nick voted no on it as well. Oh, yes. Uh, and hopefully oh, yes, our listeners. listeners also vote no on the Metro. 26 to 18. If you're listening to this, I haven't voted yet. 218. Yeah, exactly. The other th comment that I keep making is we are probably five or 10 years away from autonomous vehicles. And this probably doesn't affect you as much out here in on your farm, but in downtown Portland, mm -hmm. I mean, imagine Lyft and Uber trying to get across town. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the cost of that? Probably 70% of it goes to the driver. Mm -hmm. So you eliminate the driver. Now all you have is a vehicle that you have to maintain. And if it's a Tesla, what do you change the tires every once in a mm -hmm. while? Like there's hardly any maintenance for those things. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your costs are incredibly small and so as soon as you can get from one side of portland to the other for three dollars mm -hmm. no one's taking public transit and ever. that and that also means we have to talk about congestion yeah and mm -hmm. one point that you yep. made is people working from home so i will use my own self as an example before covid zoom existed Mm -hmm. Right before COVID, it existed. Did it was we called use Skype it? back then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's true. But, but so I and and I am forty years old. I would call myself relatively tech savvy, comparatively, mm -hmm. and I hated it. I refused to figure out how it worked. I didn't. I I didn't like it. If I may have been on a couple of them, but as soon as COVID hit, we're forced into this. And it really wasn't a big deal. Like once, once you download it, okay, you're good to go. You learn how to mute yourself and take yourself off video real quick, right? <laughs> so you, you learn how to use it. And now we've all learned how to use it. And so to, we are not going back to, to what it was. It's going to look different. I, I question what rent in downtown Portland is going to look like. Are people going to be renting out or purchasing the same amount of office space? For their employees, probably not. 
why, if you can work from home and be the same amount of productive, why would you drive and in congestion, mm-hmm. you, you think of your mental health in 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes of congestion every single day. What else can you do? You can do a lot of things with an extra couple hours a day. And if you're an employer, you're not having to purchase all of that rent and you can subsidize some of that. You can give them some sort of credit. So I think that that is a major question mark when it comes to what you're talking about with the Metro bill. And then you start talking about, I said on the I-5 bridge committee mm-hmm. and what held up the, the I-5 bridge last time? Light rail. Oh, light rail. Yeah. Light rail. They couldn't, know. environmental too, but they couldn't agree. And so why would you put, why would you put in infrastructure that is so, that, that has one option? Can you put in infrastructure where you have space and say, maybe light rail or maybe high speed rail or maybe something? Or do you put in the space and make sure and, and talk buses or like you said, autonomous vehicles? Mm-hmm. We don't know what the future holds. So why would you put yourself into this box if it's not for the quote, follow the money? Right. right. And so I think whether you're talking about I-5 bridge, whether you're talking about this bill that you're, that you guys are dealing with up in Metro, I find it hard to believe that they would pass this. But my goodness. Well, they're pushing it through. I mean, and that's my point. Like the Democratic leadership has decided that they're going to push this through and try to get it passed. And so whether or not it passes, I mean, hopefully the voters are, are intelligent enough to realize how many question marks there are and actually vote it down. <laughs> but I'm not convinced the city of Portland has never met a tax that it didn't like. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I... I guess we'll see. We'll, well see. Some, so some of them ended up being close. And I measure 97 was that was a statewide thing a couple of years ago, but that did fail. And then I think got bullied through by the legislature under a different name. 97 what? was a sales tax. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I've sales tax, not called a sales tax. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the back door yeah. sales right. tax. And right. then they renamed it corporate activity yeah. tax yeah, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. passed it in the legislature anyway. Yeah, I was there. You were there. I was there. <laughs> I was there. Hopefully, I'm sure casting strenuous objections. Uh, I almost, yes, you came in second place in that vote. Uh, it almost worked <laughs> out. But I, I haven't seen any polling on the 26 to 18 yet. But I, I even like Oregonian came out against, and they like they had some bad endorsements this time around. And even those guys were like, you know what? Uh, this is just maybe maybe not the the time or the place for it. So I've I've got my fingers crossed. Well, we will see. Yeah, I uh, a friend slash acquaintance who shall remain nameless, but is a bigwig in one of the public employee unions, even said this is a bad bill because there are so many question marks, but pushing it through anyway. So I guess we'll see. I One thing I wanted to ask about, I know you you obviously run myriad businesses, but you you work on the international side Mm -hmm. of getting – Oregon products and, you know, Oregon work, Oregon wonderful hazelnuts, uh, agricultural products all over the world, all over to, I saw Japan and South Korea, I'm sure, uh, you know, a ton of other places. I, I just got back from Texas for two weeks and just even on the way to the airport, my dad pointed out this is where Apple built their new campus. Toyota removed, moved their finance world headquarters to where my brother lives in Dallas. Tesla just landed a big thing just outside of Austin to build another gigafactory there. And that was, this has all been in the past six months. And here we are as, you know, blissfully happy Oregonians. And I can't remember the last time somebody not named Intel or Nike, you know, (laughs) made some kind of major business move here. And it's that nobody's coming here. And I feel like for somebody like you who understands business, has been successful at it and serves in the legislature, that's got to be difficult to see when we, you know, we should be out competing and trying to get other companies to come here. And we just, we don't have that environment of success. We don't. And, you know, the old location, 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 that only goes so far because you look at we're sitting on the Pacific Rim. We have the ocean right there. And so we can go through our ports in Portland, in Tacoma, in Seattle, and possibly even down to, um, in through California. These are all options to access all of Asia, mm. all of Asia. So what holds us back are going to be costs and what kind of competitive edge we have or don't have as Oregonians or here on the West Coast. So we have the location. And that's something that the rest of the United States doesn't have. But then you have to do more than that. So the fact that people would move away from the best location possible is telling, 
right? And so we then go to a, a myriad of, of different things. Why are we not bringing business in? It's taxes. It's um, whether we're friendly to business or not. It's regulations. It's transportation costs. It's a lot of different things. And so we have to look at those if we're going to bring business here into Oregon because we've got great facilities. We've got great ability and great location. And we also have um, the workforce to get it done. And, and I'm part of the Agriculture Transportation Coalition. And one of the things that they say all the time is, we can produce the best agriculture in the world, but whether or not we can get it to market is what makes us valuable or not. Mm-hmm. So we can produce the safest grass seed, the safest grass straw, the safest hazelnuts, which by the way, we produced a hundred percent of the U.S. hazelnuts here in the Willamette Valley. Just throw that out there, but we can produce the safest agriculture here in the world, but whether or not we can get it to market and whether we can do that at, at competitively remains the question. And that has everything to do with business, with regulation, with transportation. Well, regulation, I think, is something that kind of gets overlooked unless you work in a business or own a business or something. And I just had lunch today. Uh, today is the 19th of October. This is going to be posted a little bit later. But I had lunch today with Josh Howard, who is the Republican running in the uh, Oregon City area. I He's from what. Albany. It, yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, Hometown I mentioned, guy. I mentioned I where I was coming down here. I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that area. Um, I forget the district number, and he's – sorry if you're listening. But uh, – had lunch with him and he runs worst for a nonprofit or has in the past worst for a nonprofit trying to build homeless shelters. And he says he does it in Montana and it's easy. He does it in Idaho and it's easy. He tries to build it in Portland and just regulation and red tape and he just can't do it. And it's just like you, ha- you can have the best intentions. You can have all the money. You can have the expertise. But if you have big government coming in and squishing you with regulation, you can't get anything done. And again, and, and unless you own a business or have seen that firsthand, you probably don't have a good idea of how crushing government regulation can be. Well, it also is, it's a barrier to entry. So if you're a young, you know, fill in the blank, doesn't matter. If you are a young person wanting to get, want to be an entrepreneur, want to get into something, um, take for example, the trucking industry. We, my dad started trucking in 1983. So every regulation that has come along has been crushing in a sense, but we can take on one thing after another because it's just one more thing. But if you were to get into trucking, I mean, can you name a trucking company that has started in the last couple of years? No. I don't know how many trucking companies I can name. So <laughs> you're general? putting us on the spot here. <laughs> but there, there's so many regulations, so many licensing requirements, so many p- pieces of paperwork and so many things just to run a business. And then the licensing of said industry, whatever it is. And so it's, it's really a barrier to entry. And I feel very strongly that the Capitol building in Salem is a barrier to a lot of people. And that needs to change. That absolutely needs to change. We know that Main Street and small business being successful means employees and means our communities are successful. And so having any sort of barrier to entry, to starting a new business or to um, making sure that those small businesses thrive, um, I think is is very problematic as we sit today and something that will always be in the forefront of my my mind as I move forward. I think another good example of that, and I'm going to screw up the numbers again because I don't haven't memorized it. But in order to be a hairdresser or a barber in Oregon, requires something like 1,500 hours of experience wow. or something like that. Oh. And again, I messed up that number, so don't quote me on it. But just, I mean, sets to cut hair. Did yeah. your hairdresser skip a couple of those classes? <laughs> <'Cause your haircut laughs> and- <laughs> but I'll give Thanks another to- example though: tanning salons. You don't oh. you don't think of mm. something, but they got shut down because they were part of quote personal services. Uh-huh. And I have a, a local salon here in Albany. Um, it's Jetstream Aqua Massage and Tan, and she's saying, Shelly, I am licensed by the state to be sanitary. I'm licensed. I pay for this licensing. I'm registered. I do all of these things. I don't touch people. When people come in, I'm not even close to them, and yet I'm shut down. And so when you mandate with a broad brush, then it really hurts people. And I really think that it disproportionately affected women. 
in, in these personal services that we talk about, whether they're hairstylists or whether they're salon owner or tanning salon owners. And then in addition, in her case, she lost out on her spring and summer. That's when people tan. And so that's what carries her through the whole rest of the year. And so I tried to work with the governor's office specifically with that, but it goes back to licensing and registration. The the state trusts you to do X, Y, and Z. You pay for that licensing, you get all of that done, and then they still shut you down. And so it's been um, very frustrating um, during this time and just, that's just one scenario of many, many, um, you know, why Shelly, why are they doing this, uh, emails and phone calls and messages I got. And that's, that was one of the most heartbreaking of, of this last year. Nick, well, when is it that you tan? Do you tan in the spring and summer? <laughs> Or I, I have to tan year, all year round. I, okay. I used to live in Texas. I used to look like good. I was good. I was good to go. I, I, my wife even commented when I got back from Texas. After I didn't being there see for that coming. Weeks. I did not see that coming. I know. And now I get up here and I look like a snowman or something up here. It's, I, I, I need to call your friend because clearly I need it. All right. You're going to say something. It's probably more serious than that. <laughs> I, what, what do we ever say that's serious? This is the whole point of this podcast. But no, so I, I, I was going to ask, we are, we're in the middle of this pandemic and it's very serious. We just crossed our eight, eight millionth case as a country at like, uh, yesterday or day or two ago. We've, we're over 200,000 deaths here in the United States. It is serious. Nobody's trying to downplay that. Nobody's trying to say it's not something that we all really need to, to kind of buck up and take a part in and, and fix. But I think it's interesting in that the left is very much we need healthcare. We need masks, germex, whatever. We got to stop the coronavirus now and in its tracks. And which I agree with, don't get me wrong, but it's the right who's saying there are so many unintended consequences that we are mm-hmm. not stopping to consider. If it's the economy as a whole, I, your friend that owns the tanning business, if it's mental health concerns, if it's any kind of uh, PTSD that we're all going to look through. Well, like, look at the schools. I mean, the education? low-income children of That's, color are the ones who do not have... The ability to get on Zoom every If you don't have access to internet, I mean, yeah, we were talking about Zoom earlier. Like, if you can't do that in the first place, and that's the other, the salient detail is the impact is so inequitable. It is by far disproportionately affecting minorities, single parents, lower income individuals, individuals with mental health conditions. And it, this is just something that is not getting talked about. And I, we as a country, we cannot afford to not be talking about these types of things. We cannot afford to just say, we just need to, to stop the virus, just need to find a vaccine. That's we've, important. We've, but we've got a number. We've got a, people like numbers and some number is something you can measure. And eight million is a, is a pretty big mm-hmm. number that you can measure. And yeah, but we're using exactly one metric to judge the impact of COVID-19 right. and ignoring absolutely everything else. So those, if, if you, I oftentimes judge kind of what's going on by the messages, the calls, the emails that are coming into Mm -hmm. my inbox, right? And so when it's March, April, May, June, July, it's all unemployment. It's employment issues. It's the employment division. It's unemployment and, um, heartbreaking stories. And just, we all read the news. We all know how terrible that was. Today, it's parents and schools and education. And when you talk about one metric, um, you, you just question your, I think that we're all starting to question what's the end game? What, what are we trying to reach? You know, we were told at the beginning, slowing the spread. We were told we don't want to overwhelm our hospitals. We've done that. So what, what are, are we going to continue to shut everybody down until it's eradicated? Like, what is the end game? Mm -hmm. And so parents and schools and education are number one by far what's filling up my inbox. I mean, it's you can't even keep up with it because there's so many people that are just besides themselves. You mentioned, um, and and I'll, I'll qualify it as a wealth and knowledge gap. Hmm. You're talking about some people are not going to get the education that other people can. Because some people have the means to hire a tutor, to figure it out, to quit work, to work less, to work at home. There are some that are going to figure it out. They're going to be able to homeschool. They're going to be able to send their kids to private school. They're going to do something in order to get their kids an education. And then there's going to be some that cannot. 
And we're seeing that wealth gap and that knowledge gap get bigger every single day. And it is, it's not even unfair. Unfair is not even the right word. As a society, we're allowing it to happen. And it breaks my heart because you see these people that can do it and you see these people that can't do it. And I also think the societal cost is going to be huge because we're basically parents that have to work or single parents that have to work. They're leaving their kids at home and then whether or not they can get an education and now you know, first grader is being taught by fourth grader and they're trying to get on Zoom. And I know how hard it is with teenagers and me trying to have that happen. And you're also seeing women leave the workforce. And that is something that I think is just going to be um, a change moving forward. I have multiple women contacting me saying, I'm reducing my hours. I've left my job because I have to make sure that my kids have an education. And so um, these are things that are happening right or wrong. I am, this isn't even a whether this should be happening or not. It is happening. And so in, in conversations with our local community college and conversations with our local chamber, nonprofits, we, the people, we, our neighbors and community are going to have to step in that gap and make sure that, that, um, I think community college is going to be part of an answer to that problem moving forward. Um, but I am very concerned about alcohol abuse, about domestic abuse, about, um, any sort of abuse, uh, about teen pregnancy, about mischief in general. Um, all of these things are, are going on. And, um, as a society, we're going to be dealing with this for, I think, many, many years to come. Well, we are getting just about to the end of time. So one of the things we like to ask all our guests before we leave is, who is your favorite Republican? Thankfully, I listened to your podcast, so I know this was coming. (laughs) Although I wish that I had a, a better answer for you. So I, two years ago, ran for office for the first time ever. I never considered growing up running for office, although for some reason, my minor, my, my major is business and my minor is political science. I have no idea what my 20-year-old self was thinking <laughs> when I chose that minor, but I did. So I must have been thinking something. Subconsciously. Maybe. Up. Maybe. Um, but I also looked at it. I, I regret not joining the military. I regret not giving back to my country. And so when this opportunity um, was put in front of me, to me, it felt like I was giving back to my community. Um, and so for that reason, I was, I've never been very political. And so I don't know if I can answer a favorite Republican, but I can say over the last couple years and in, in my first, um, term at the Oregon House of Representatives that my favorite Republican would be the House Republican Caucus. I admire my um, caucus mates, teammates. I'm going to go with teammates. Um, it is a team. It's it team is sport. a team. It It is. Um, and I think that we as Republicans in general, and I'm totally generalizing, we're independent thinkers. And um, one thing that our leader, Representative Drazen, she knows that we're all going to think for ourselves. And she actually appreciates that about all of us. And yet we can still be a team um, and still be able to be united on on some issues. And so for me, my favorite Republican is the House Republican Caucus. And I am very, very proud to be a member of it. Great answer. There's a lot of high cards in there. Yeah. There's some okay ones. You know, Bill Post, (laughs) Dan Bonham. They're okay. No, I'm just kidding. Those those are the only two other ones we've had on. I feel like I can rib them a little bit. But you know, in any sort of team, everybody brings something different to the table. And so geographically, we're diverse. Um, and so I think that, that because of that, I've, I've many times been sitting around, um, in the caucus room and looking at everybody brings something different to the table and we're all heard and appreciated. And so that, for that reason, um, that's my final answer. Very cool. Well, Representative, thank you again so much for coming on the show. And listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.